All right, we'll be in Proverbs chapter 10 this afternoon. Proverbs chapter 10. And we'll read the chapter, but we're going to break this one in half. Um, So we'll do the first 16 verses today. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 1. It says, The Proverbs of Solomon. A wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. Ill-gotten gains do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord will not allow the righteous to hunger, but he will reject the craving of the wicked. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a son who acts wisely, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who acts shamefully. Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. The memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. The wise of heart will receive commands, but a babbling fool will be ruined. He who walks in integrity walks securely, but he who perverts his way will be found out. He who winks the eye causes trouble, and a babbling fool will be ruined. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. On the lips of the discerning, wisdom is found, but a rod is for the back of him who lacks understanding. Wise men store up knowledge, but with the mouth of the foolish, ruin is at hand. The rich man's wealth is his fortress. The ruin of the poor is their poverty. The wages of the righteous is life, the income of the wicked punishment. He is on the path of life who heeds instruction, but he who ignores reproof goes astray. He who conceals hatred has lying lips. And he who spreads slander is a fool. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips is wise. The tongue of the righteous is as choice silver. The heart of the wicked is worth little. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of understanding. It is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. Doing wickedness is like sport to a fool, and so is wisdom to a man of understanding. What the wicked fears will come upon him. But the the desire of the righteous will be granted. When the whirlwind passes, the wicked is no more. But the righteous has an everlasting foundation. Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the lazy one to those who send him. The fear of the Lord prolongs life. But the years of the wicked will be shortened. The hope of the righteous is gladness. But the expectation of the wicked perishes. The way of the Lord is a stronghold to the upright. But ruin to the workers of iniquity. The righteous will never be shaken, but the wicked will not dwell in the land. The mouth of the righteous flows with wisdom, but the perverted tongue will be cut out. The lips of the righteous bring forth what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we pray that this wisdom, Lord, that is here manifested in so many ways in this contrast between good and evil, between wisdom and folly. We pray that we would be on the pathway of the wise, of the righteous, Lord, walking in the wisdom of the Lord, and Lord, not depending upon our own insights, our own perceptions, Lord, that what is good and right in our own eyes. So, Father, we pray that you help us to see and to understand, and Lord, that you would give to us eyes to see and ears to hear. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, in chapter 10... The book of Proverbs takes a turn, a shift from what it's been dealing with thus far. Uh, Not that it's unrelated. Certainly everything in the book is interrelated with everything else in the Bible. But up to this point, he has been extolling the greatness of wisdom and why it is that we should give ourselves over to the pursuit of wisdom, which is none other than the very wisdom of Christ. He's talking about salvation. This is what he is dealing with here. In chapter 10, he now begins to set forth in these statements, contrast between the wise man and the foolish man in many various ways, right? In all of these applications to the way that we live and interact in our day-in and day-out life. And in this, he is manifesting a contrast between the two. He has displayed in these opening chapters the goodness and the call of wisdom. He represented the very wisdom of Christ. We saw in chapter 9, verses 1 to 6, that he described wisdom as having her house built. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has prepared her food. She has mixed her wine. She has set her table. 
She sent out her maidens, she calls, from the top of the heights of the city. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, she says, come, eat my food and drink of the wine that I have mixed. Forsake your folly and live and proceed in the way of understanding. This is the call of wisdom, and this is what we've seen in the opening chapters of the book of Proverbs. Also, we saw the contrast to that in chapter 9, 13 to 18. And this is the woman folly. Wisdom is presented as a woman with her house, inviting the naive to come and partake of uh, her goodness. But also, folly is described as a woman who also has her house and is inviting the naive to come and partake of what she has to offer. It says in verse 13, The woman of folly is boisterous. She is naive and knows nothing. She sits at the doorway of her house on a seat by the high places of the city calling to those who pass by who are making their path straight. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. And him who lacks understanding, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. So here, wisdom and folly contrasted, right? The wise man and the foolish man, right? The one who heeds wisdom and the one that listens to foolishness. Now he's going to display the fruit of wisdom and the fruit of folly as it manifests itself in the daily lives of the righteous and the wicked, the children of God versus the children of the devil. Those who went into the house of the wise woman, who partook of her goods, who have become wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, who are forming their mind and their life after the word of God, they will be displayed as the wise man. And this will be manifested in many different ways throughout the rest of the book of Proverbs. And then the children of the devil, those who partake of foolishness, who depend upon the wisdom of this world, they also are going to be manifest by their fruit in contrast to the righteous. So this is what he's doing as he goes forward. In these statements, these statements usually are one verse and it contrasts the righteous and the wicked as he goes throughout here. So today we'll deal with the first 16 of chapter 10. The first one, a wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. We remember that this very book is addressed to his son. It's addressed to his son that his son might become wise. And now he's telling his son That if you are a wise son, and by wise son he means if you believe the word of God, if you have faith in Christ, right? If you heed to the instructions of the word of Christ, then you will be a wise son and you will make your father glad. Isn't it a joy and a rejoicing for a father if their children are raised in the fear of the Lord and when they come into their adulthood, instead of abandoning the Lord, denying the faith, going out and living a wicked and worthless life, they continue in those things, they heed the wise words of their father, and they live an upright and a godly life. Right? What Christian father would be disappointed that his son lives a righteous life? No one would. Rather, they're glad. They're glad, they're happy, they rejoice to see their children living in this way. This is the way it is. But the contrast is the fool. The foolish son is a grief to his mother. Now, he's not saying that only the father is glad when the son is wise and only the mother is grieving when the son is a foolish. But he's setting him there together because the wise son makes both his father and mother glad and the foolish son makes makes both his father and his mother very grieved and disappointed when they see their son who they raised right, who knows better, depart from the faith and go out and live a worthless and a wicked life. It brings great grief and trouble to them, not only to see them ruin their life, but also when they contemplate and think about their eternal destiny. Right? What awaits this child of theirs if they do not repent of their sin? It brings great grief to them to have to contemplate and to deal with such things. A couple of examples. The first one, Genesis 37. Genesis 37 Here, the wise son, the wise son bringing great joy to his father. Genesis 37, verses 1 to 5. 
says, now Jacob lived in the land of Canaan where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still young, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his brother's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, of his old age and he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Here, Joseph, who we know is a very righteous man. From the narrative concerning Joseph, from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50, this is the way that Joseph is portrayed. And this is why many times people will impugn both Jacob and Joseph in this passage. But this isn't to be the case at all. The reason he brought a bad report concerning his brothers is because they were behaving badly. And his father needed to know because they were not behaving and living in a proper way according to the responsibilities that were conferred upon them. And the reason the father loved him more than the brothers, not that he didn't love the other brothers, but his heart was more bound to Joseph because of his wisdom, because of his righteousness, his godliness. We know what kind of a man that Joseph was even at a young age. Even as a teenager in Potiphar's wife, he was able to resist and overcome temptations that many grown men are not able to overcome and resist. This was the type of godliness that was found in Joseph. And this is why his father loved him so deeply and showed his love and affection for him by giving him this very colored coat. An example of the contrast, Genesis 26. Go, we go back one generation. Genesis 26, 34 and 35. It says, When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, the daughter of Beri the Hittite, and Basmat, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. And they brought grief to Isaac and Jacob, or to Isaac and Rebekah. Here, Esau who we know is an unholy man, who is an unbeliever, a reprobate, Esau, he married these foreign women, these unbelieving, idolatrous women, brought them into the household, and the result was grief. Grief. Grief because of the constant turmoil that these wicked women were bringing into the house through their idolatry, through their sinfulness, through the way that they lived, but also grief to see their own son do this with his own life, to see him so carelessly marry these foreigners, knowing full well of the dangers associated with them, of the idolatry and the leaven that he was going to bring into the household. And so they brought great grief to both the father and the mother. Verse 2. Ill-gotten gains do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. Here, gains that are ill-gotten, gains that are gotten through uh, deceptive means, through illegitimate means, these do not profit. And many times, the reason people pursue ill-gotten gains is because everyone believes that money will cure all of their problems, that money is the uh, solution to all of their evils, to all of their troubles. But if you get that money in ill-gotten ways, is it going to solve your troubles? Is it not going to create greater troubles for you on the day of judgment? Right? Many times the ill-gotten gains don't even benefit you in this life because you get fined out and then you get punished by the authorities because of that. But certainly it will be found out on the day of judgment and then you will have to answer to God. So ill-gotten gains do not profit. But what does profit? Righteousness. Righteousness delivers from death, right? Who is there to harm you if you do what is right, if you do what is good? Typically speaking, even in unbelieving governments, they're not punishing those who are living godly and righteous lives. Certainly there are exceptions to that rule, but generally speaking, if we live a godly life, if we're living according to righteousness, we're not going to be pursued and punished by the authorities. If we're living a quiet, dignified life in all godliness, so we're not going to have problems in this life and also in the life to come on the day of judgment. We will stand approved before God because the righteousness will deliver us from death, right? Not our righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. 
in his righteousness, credited to our account, as we read earlier from Romans chapter 4, will manifest itself in our godly living. And who is there to harm us if we're living according to the will of Christ? Right? This is the way it will be. So ill-gotten gains will not benefit us. But righteousness is a great benefit. Right? Righteousness. First, the righteousness of Christ. Secondly, his righteousness manifested in us in the way that we are living. And, there, and then third, it will also be that way that if we are living a righteous life in that way, that we will pursue our employment, we will pursue uh, gain in lawful ways that will not lead to punishment. And so in that way, it will be a benefit in each and every way. Verse 3, the Lord will not allow the righteous to hunger but he will reject the craving of the wicked. Here, the Lord will not allow the righteous to hunger. Now, certainly, he does not mean that the righteous will never be afflicted with the affliction of hunger. We know this because of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians 11, 26 to 27, the apostle Paul mentions as some of his sufferings, hunger. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty six 26 says, I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers for the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the seas, danger uh, from false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. So here, he cannot mean that the righteous will never face hunger, because certainly the Apostle Paul did, and there are other righteous men who would have faced such dilemmas. But he will not allow them to be overcome by this, by this affliction. And many times God does provide for our needs so that we have everything that we need when we're seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He adds all of these things unto us in that he provides everything that is needful for our physical bodies. And is there anyone here among us who could say that we have faced starvation, that we have faced hunger in this way? Have any of us missed a meal apart from our own decision, our own choosing not to do that? Right? Many times this isn't the case at all. We have plenty of food, and this is because God is providing for us. God provides for all of our needs. But even if God does choose to afflict us with hunger, he will not allow that hunger to overcome us to overcome our faith so as to make us stumble and fall. But the craving of the wicked is going to perish. He's going to reject it. Whatever they crave, whatever they desire, is going to come back upon their own head because they're wicked people. And no matter what they get by their cravings or whatever satisfaction they may get in their cravings in this life, ultimately it will be vain, it will be useless, it will be of no benefit to them on the day of judgment because then they will face the eternal torments of hell. Verse 4. Poor is he who works with negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Here, the negligent poor, they don't work, they neglect, they don't do the things that they ought to do. They're not industrious in their work. And when a person is poor, because he is refusing to work, then he's getting what he deserves. He's a negligent man. He's not working hard. He's not looking for a job. He's not doing what is good and right in the sight of God. And if a man will not work, then don't let him eat. This is according to the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians. So if the man is negligent, we're not talking about someone who is crippled. We're not talking about someone who is blind, who's unable to work, but someone who is able-bodied, who has the ability to work, but refuses to work. He neglects his work. He doesn't do what he ought to have done. And then it comes upon his own head. Well, they're the ones out there screaming and asking for handouts, asking for us to give them money. But he says his poverty is a result, it's the fruit of his own labor, or lack of labor, his lack of diligence. But then the hand of the diligent makes rich. Again, not a guarantee that if you work hard, you're going to become a very wealthy man according to the worldly standards. But if you are a hard worker, aren't you typically going to be better off than if you're a lazy worker? 
Isn't that the way it is universally? And no matter what job you're in, whether you're working at McDonald's or whether you're the CEO of some Fortune 500 company, if you are a hard worker, you're going to advance, you're going to be promoted, you're going to make more money, you're going to have more responsibilities, and with more responsibilities comes greater pay. This is what they're going to do. But if you're lazy and worthless, then you're going to get fired or you're going to stay there at the very bottom. Right, because they can't find anyone else unless a computer can replace you, then they'll replace you. But ultimately, there's no, there's, there's no advancement. Why are they going to give you more responsibilities? You don't even do the things that you're supposed to do. So it's going to lead to more and more poverty. This is true both in the physical world, but also this is true in the spiritual world. Right? A person who is neglecting their spiritual duties, who is not industrious in the pursuit of spiritual disciplines, they're going to be poor spiritually, not in the good sense, like Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, where it's good to be spiritually poor in terms of understanding our sinfulness, but they're going to have weak faith. They're not going to be making great strides and advancements in the Christian life because they're not giving themselves to the spiritual disciplines, to the duties that Christ calls them to with great diligence. They neglect the reading of the Bible. They neglect prayer. They neglect the fellowship of the saints. They're neglecting the things that God has given by which we become rich in faith and rich in godliness. But when we are diligent in these things, diligent to read the scriptures, to memorize the word of God, diligent to pray, diligent to gather and meet together with God's people and study the word of God, then isn't our faith going to be greater? It's going to be built up. We're going to advance in godliness. All of these things will be there laid before us. So we must be diligent in these things. It says in Proverbs 10, 22, it is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. Right? It, it, ultimately, it depends on the blessing of the Lord. But in terms of our responsibility, what is our duty toward work is to work hard, to be diligent and not to neglect dutiful, lawful employment. Verse 5. He who gathers in the summer is a son who acts wisely, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who acts shamefully. Right? The one that gathers in the summer is a wise son. The summer being the time, the season, where more work is required. More work can be done. The weather is more accommodating. The days are longer. You're able to do more work in the summer, and you have to work diligently in the summer to make preparations for the winter. And if you don't and you neglect to do that, then what's going to happen in the winter? You're not going to have what you need. You're not going to have the provisions stored up, both in terms of food, in terms of fuel, in terms of the things that you need to endure the more difficult time, the more difficult season to live during the winter when you're going to be exposed to various uh, hardships and difficulties. So the wise son, he gathers in the summer, right? His father tells him to go out to work, and he goes and he works, and he's diligent to work hard in the summer. But the sleeper, the one who sleeps in harvest, is a son who acts shamefully, right? The harvest, all of the work that we put in, from the sowing of the seed, the cultivating of the ground, the clearing of the weeds, the irrigation, whatever it is that has been done that has brought us to this point where now it is time to reap the fruit of our labor. Now it's time to harvest the grain, harvest the goods, whatever it is that we have planted. And here we are, and whenever the crops are ready, you have a, a period of time to harvest it. It won't stay out there forever. Eventually, uh, insects are going to eat it. It might mold mildew, uh, it'll turn to sour, it won't be any good anymore. So you have a window of time to go out and gather all of that grain, all of the food that's going to provide for your income. And your son is supposed to be out there helping you, and where's he at? He's asleep, he's asleep. He's not awake, and he's not ready to go to work. You have to wake him up. It's hard for him to get up. That's what I used to be like when I was a kid. My dad had to come and shake me right out of bed. Well, that's what you need, right? That's what we need. But we need the Word of God to shake us up, right, in order to do that because you don't always have your father there to throw you out of bed. Eventually, you have to grow up and go out on your own. And then you have to get up and do those things and be disciplined yourself. Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. 
in verse 8, or verse 6. Here, he uses the ant as an illustration of diligent work in contrast to the sluggard. Proverbs 6.6, Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provisions in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. Right, the ant, having no ruler or chief, no one standing over the ant, cracking the whip, forcing him or her to go to work, they do it naturally. They do it because they are very diligent, hard workers, and they're examples for us to follow in that regard. Should the ant that has no moral compass exceed the righteous in the way that they work? Should they exceed us in the way that we work in our jobs? And should they exceed us in the way that we work for the kingdom of God in relation to spiritual things? Verse 6. Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Here, God's blessing is on the head of the righteous, meaning on the person of the righteous. The blessing of God resides upon them. Right? To be blessed is to have the favor of God. To have the favor the paternal love of God, to have God pouring out all of the blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. And these blessings do not reside on the wicked, but they do reside on the head of the righteous. This is Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Here, he has blessed us. And who's he talking to? Well, he's not talking to unbelievers. He's not talking to the wicked. He's not talking to idolaters. He's talking to the Christian church, to the believers who are the righteous. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So God's blessing is on the person of the righteous. This is the way it is. And then Proverbs chapter 11, verse 26, says, He who withholds grain, the people will curse, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. Here, in chapter 10, he's talking about the state, the spiritual state of the person. They are righteous. And then in chapter 11, verse 26, He's talking about the fruit. As a result of the spiritual state, what is one of the things that's true of a righteous man? Well, he doesn't withhold grain. He sells it to those who have need. He's not jobbing them. He's not hoarding it to drive the prices up so he can make greater profit. He's willing to sell it at a fair price whenever there is the need that arises. This is because he loves his neighbor as himself. And he's dealing honestly and righteously in these things. So is that blessing on the head of the righteous? Or is the blessing on the head of the one who sells his grain? Well, they're one and the same person, right? He's righteous according to his state. And because of that, this is the way that he lives. This is the way that he acts and the way that he behaves in life. And then the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. The mouth of the wicked conceals the violence. They have violence in their heart and they have violence in their mind but they conceal it, right? They don't say it. They're not honest about their intentions, about what they're going to do. So they are very violent, wicked men in the way that they behave and what they want to do to you, but they pretend like they're your friend. They flatter you and they say these kinds of things without telling you what's truly on their heart. Verse 7. The memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. Here, the righteous, the memory of the righteous is blessed. Right? When the righteous man is living his life, right, he is a blessing to his family. He is a blessing to his church. He's even a blessing to society. Even unbelievers benefit from his existence in the world. And whenever he dies, he's remembered not as a profane man, not as a worthless man, but especially amongst the church, amongst the righteous, they have very fond memories of the righteous man. 
when they think about him. They speak highly of him, right? They say wonderful things about him, about his faith, about his godliness, about the way that he served, the way that he loved. This is what they say about the righteous man. So they think very highly and they say very kind things, not flattering things. They have no reason to flatter him. He's dead. But they say these things because they're true. And they really believe this to be the case of the man. Psalm 112. Psalm 112, verse 6. says, He will never be shaken. The righteous will be remembered forever. The righteous will be remembered forever. Then also Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 1. A good name is better than a good ointment. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. A good name is better than a good ointment, right? And a good name that's based upon reality, based upon the truth, right? Not uh, based upon lies, but a good name that accords with the good person. Well, this is what is true of the righteous man. His memory is remembered. And when people think of him, it brings back fond memories of this person. He is blessed because of these things. But then the name of the wicked is going to rot. When he dies, people are going to say what they really think about him, right? Unfiltered, unfiltered. Especially if it's a wicked ruler. Because when he's a ruler, you have to watch your tongue because he might hear you and throw you in prison. But then after he dies, you don't care, right? What's he going to do to you? Everyone detests him, and then you can speak openly and freely, and people are going to say all sorts of things about this person, how wicked and how worthless he was. His name, his memory will be rot, rotten, putrid, whenever you think about that person and the way that he lived. As it says in Proverbs 11.10, When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there is joyful shouting. When the wicked perish, the righteous are shouting for joy. They're shouting for joy because this wicked, worthless person who has been such a torment and a pest on the earth is no more. And then his memory... What we think about him will be rotten, will be putrid, because this is what is true of him according to his deeds. Verse 8. The wise of heart will receive commands, but a babbling fool will be ruined. The wise of heart will receive commands, meaning they're listening. They're not talking, they're listening. They're listening to others. That shows their humility. And when others are talking and they're speaking the commands of God, then the wise of heart will receive those and they will listen, right? So they're listen, as it says in James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. James 1, 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Quick to hear... Slow to speak, slow to anger. And especially quick to hear if the person is speaking the oracles of God. If they're speaking the wisdom of God, then the wise man will receive the commandments. He has wisdom in his heart and he'll listen to the word of God. But a babbling fool will be ruined. The babbling fool doesn't listen. All he cares about is what? Speaking in his own mind. And what he's saying is nonsense. He's just babbling about showing everyone how much of a fool he is because he doesn't know what he's talking about. We shouldn't be like that. An example of this would be 3 John. 3 John verse 9. 3 John verse 9 says, I wrote something to the church, but... Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. He won't receive the command because he doesn't have a wise heart. He's a babbling fool who is just speaking his own mind and living and and putting his own commands and his own expectations there within the church. Verse 9. 
He who walks in integrity walks securely, but he who perverts his way will be found out. If you walk with integrity, then you have nothing to fear. You have a clean conscience before God and man, which is what the Apostle Paul says in Acts 24, 16, that he always strives to maintain a clean conscience before, before both God and man. Then, even if he suffers, he knows that he's suffering for righteousness' sake, and that's nothing for him to fear. Even then, he still walks securely. He, he still has his stability because he knows that his suffering is not the result of some sin that he's committed against God, but rather it is the testing of God in his life. So whenever we walk with integrity, we have security. We walk with stability. We're on the straight and narrow. We're on the highway of holiness, and we have the favor of God upon our lives. But he who perverts his way will be found out. The one with a perverted way, who has a crooked way, is typically not proclaiming that to the world. He's hiding it. He's hiding it. He's being uh, concealed in what he's doing. Well, eventually, what's going to happen to him? It's going to come out. He's going to be found out, and then he's going to be punished. If it's sins that he's committing in this life, he'll be punished by the authorities. If it's sins that he's committing against God, then he'll be punished by God on the day of judgment, and it will be found out. Ten, he who winks the eye causes trouble, and a babbling fool will be ruined. The winking of the eye. If we go back to chapter 6, chapter 6, verses 12 to 14. Twelve to fourteen, a worthless person, a wicked man, is the one who walks with a perverse mouth, who winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet, who points with his fingers, who with perversity in his heart continually devises evil, who spreads strife. Therefore his calamity will come suddenly, instantly he will be broken, and there will be no healing. Here, this worthless, wicked man, he's winking, he's signaling, he's pointing, he's using this type of secretive language to communicate to people, others who are in cahoots with him, the evil that he wants to commit in order to signal to them and to communicate to them those types of evil things. This is what the wicked do. They behave in these kinds of covert, seditious ways, and they will not listen. They wink to cause trouble, and the babbling fool will be ruined. They will eventually come to their ruin and destruction. Verse 11, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Here, the mouth is a doorway, a mirror into the heart of man. It shows what is there. Well, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. What is in the heart of the righteous? He has the word of God in his heart. He has the righteousness of Christ in him. He has the spirit of God in him. He has the very life of Christ within him. So isn't that life going to come out of him in the things that he says? So that his mouth is a fountain of life. It's a benefit to him. It's a benefit to his family. It's a benefit to his church, to his neighbors, to his co-workers, wherever he goes. His mouth is a fountain of life because he's speaking not his own wisdom, not his own words, He's speaking the very word of God. The word of God that he's treasured within his heart is now coming out of his mouth and it's giving life to other people. It is a fountain of life. Didn't Jesus say that it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks? In Matthew 12, 34. But the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. They have violence in their heart and then they use their mouth in deceptive ways to conceal the violence within them. 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. <laughs> hatred, hatred, a heart full of hatred, of malice, of pride, will stir up contention and quarrels, right? With other people, a brother against brother, husband against wife, they, they're always trying to set one against another. And this is what the prideful man does. He has hatred in his heart, and because he has hatred and not love, then he stirs up strife. 
and he's constantly a source of friction and strife in the church, in the family, in, at the workplace, wherever he goes, stirring up these kinds of quarrels. But love doesn't do this. What does love do? It covers all transgressions. Right? Love is not trying to cause strife, not trying to cause friction, not trying to rehash old sins, but rather love is covering all transgressions. Now, he doesn't say love is sweeping all transgressions under the rug. That's not what he means because God does not cover our transgressions in that way. But when there is repentance, then love covers a multitude of sins. And love is not rehashing those sins to people in order to throw them in their face. And love isn't going around and spreading it to other people who don't need to know about it. Why are they talking to other people who don't need to know about it if they've forgiven them, if it's in the past? But this is what that man of hatred does. But the man of love does not behave in this way. Rather, he covers a multitude of sins after repentance. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 Chapter 13, verse 7, speaking of love, says, Love, in verse 4, Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. So this is the way that he's describing the righteous man here. It's the same way as 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Also, 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter 4, verse 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Right there, the assumption is that there are going to be sins committed one against another. This is going to be the way it is in the home, between the husband and the wife, between the parents and the children. It's going to be that way in the church. It's going to be that way in many of our relationships. And when there is sin committed, then we need to repent, we need to confess, we need to ask for forgiveness... And if we've been offended, then we need to give forgiveness and then cover that sin and not bring it up and rehash it. This is the way that we should be. And if we're fervent in our love for one another, then this will be our behavior, that we want to be reconciled and we want to be in unity and harmony with one another. We don't want there to be constant friction and strife. Verse 13, on the lips of the discerning, wisdom is found, but a rod is for the back of him who lacks understanding. Here, the lips of the discerning, right? On their lips, there's wisdom, right? This is what's coming out of their mouth. They're speaking the very wisdom of God because their mind is set on the word of God. So they are a benefit to other people, right? Isn't it good for us to have understanding, for us to have discernment on how to live? So their wisdom is in their mouth. They have discernment. Psalm 37, Psalm 37 and verse 30. 3730 30 says, The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. So the mouth of the righteous man, he utters wisdom, his mouth speaks justice, and because of this, he has discernment, he knows how to distinguish between good and evil, and he's able to help others make a proper, a proper distinction between good and evil as well. But then what about the one who has no understanding? Well, he gets a rod, the rod for the back of the one who lacks understanding. Now, we know from 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-five that the Apostle Paul unjustly was beaten with rod th rods three times. This was one of the punishments afflicted upon him by his persecutors. Now, he was persecuted and he was being punished in that way unjustly, but not because of any sin he had committed. But here it's speaking of a just punishment. And here, the one who doesn't have understanding, well, he's going to be committing sins. And eventually those sins are going to lead him to get punishment, punishment from the authorities. And what are they going to do to him? 
They're going to beat him with rods. And that's what he gets, right? That's what he deserves. Which actually, in our own day, this would be good. There's a lot of people who need to be beaten with rods. And if they were beaten with rods, then they would quit doing the things that they're doing, being a menace to society. I remember even when I was a child in 1994, there was an American in Singapore who thought it would be good to steal some street signs and spray some graffiti in Singapore. And in Singapore, if you get caught doing that, the punishment is caning. Caning, right? They bent him over and they beat him with a cane. And so guess what happened to him? He got beat with a cane. And I guarantee you, he never stole another street sign in Singapore. And he never went and sprayed graffiti again in Singapore because it was a good punishment for that kind of offense. It drives the foolishness out of these kinds of people. Well, that's what the man who lacks understanding deserves. And if the government was inflicting those kinds of punishments, it would be a benefit to society and it would be a a restraint from people committing evil, committing sins against one another and would make for a better place for us to live, to raise our families, to have our churches, to preach the gospel. It's gonna be a spiritual benefit to many other people as well. So here, the Bible is justifying rods, beatings, as a good legitimate punishment for the one who is committing sins. Verse 14, which people will say, well, you can't change someone's heart, right? You can't change someone's heart through punishment. Well, that's true. You can't change their heart, but you can change their behavior. And that's what the government's duty is. Behavior the way people are behaving outwardly. So yes, it won't convert them and it won't lead to their salvation, but if it restrains them from committing sins, then isn't that beneficial? It's beneficial for everyone. It's even beneficial for them spiritually because they're not going to have as much judgment on them. And maybe they'll listen and it'll lead to their salvation. Verse 14, wise men store up knowledge, but with the mouth of the foolish, ruin is at hand. The wise man stores up knowledge. He's constantly storing up knowledge through his readings, through his prayers, his meditations, his hearing of the word of God, his memorizing of scripture, his conversations with godly men. He's storing these things up in his heart and mind. And this is why in Matthew 12, 35, it says the good man, the good man out of his good treasure brings forth good. He has a storehouse of treasure And he stored in there the very word of God. And now he's able to bring out of that storehouse good things that are beneficial to other people. This is what the wise man does. He's storing up knowledge. But the foolish man, ruin. He brings about ruin because what he says, what is on his mouth and on his lips, is contrary to the word of God. And if you listen to him, it's going to lead to your ruin and destruction. So he brings about ruin because he's tempting you and telling people to listen to him. He's going to enlighten you. He's going to help you. He's going to tell you the way that you ought to live, the values that you should have, right? What it is that you should aspire to. But if what he's saying isn't consistent with the word of God, it's not going to be to your benefit. It's actually going to be to your ruin and to your destruction. Verse 15, the rich man's wealth is his fortress. The ruin of the poor is their poverty. Here, the rich man's wealth is his fortress. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, chapter 7 verse 12, says, Wisdom is protection just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of its possessors. There, just as money is a protection. And here he's saying that the rich man's wealth is his fortress. Now, he could mean this in a couple of ways. He could mean this in the righteous rich versus the wicked poor, right? That that would be true. And the riches that God blesses him with do provide some security, some stability for him in this present life, in that it is a fortress. He has access to better lawyers. He has the ability to have those types of things, whereas the poor man doesn't have any of that, and then he's just left to the system, and it leads to his ruin and destruction. And if the contrast is righteous, rich, and wicked, poor, then that would be true. It also could be applied in terms of spiritual things. 
right? The spiritually rich, that is their fortress. It is their faith in Christ. They are rich towards God. That is a fortress for them on the day of judgment. But those who are poor in faith, who have no faith at all, who are spiritually poor in the bad sense, that will be their ruin on the day of judgment. It will lead to their destruction. Then lastly, verse 16. The wages of the righteous is life. The income of the wicked, punishment. The wages of the righteous is life. Well, we know from Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. So wouldn't the converse of that be this? The wages of the righteous is life. Now, of course, he's not teaching works-based salvation. He's not saying that through our own efforts and through our own works in the flesh that we're able to earn eternal life for ourselves. Of course, he cannot mean that. But on the day of judgment, the righteousness of the man will be brought forward as evidence of his spiritual standing, of his spiritual state before God, and they will receive the reward of eternal life on the basis of what Christ has done for them. So their righteousness, the wages of the righteous, is life. But then the income of the wicked is punishment. The wages of sin is death. They will receive what they get because of their sin. So here we see then clearly this contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And it's given to us so that we might see the misery of the wicked in this life and the misery of the wicked on the day of judgment and so that we might see the blessing and the happiness of the righteous in this life, even in the midst of their affliction, and also see their blessing on the day of judgment so that we might follow and walk in the pathway of righteousness and we might turn away from the pathway of wickedness. So that's the implication that we should draw from this passage and from all of the Proverbs. Pursue the path of righteousness and reject the path of sin and wickedness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and Lord, how it clearly Lord, describes for us with such accuracy Lord, such honesty and clarity. Lord, the difference between the righteous and the wicked. Lord, we know that those who have your favor, Lord, those who have been washed in the blood of Christ, who have been cleansed of their iniquity and their sin, Lord, we know that they will inherit the kingdom of God and that you will grant that to them. And Lord, we pray that that is what would be true of us and that, Lord, what we are by faith and what we are spiritually, Lord, that it would be manifested, Lord, in many ways, Lord, in the way that we live. Lord, just as we have seen described here in this proverb today. Lord, as well, we know that the wages of sin is death. Lord, help us to remember, Lord, to be always mindful of the fact that the soul who sins will die and that there is no peace for the wicked, but only the promise of certain destruction. Lord, that we might not walk in that pathway, but instead, Lord, walk in the pathway of righteousness. So, Lord, we ask that you be with us as we go from here today. Lord, help us to see these two paths very clearly. Lord, to walk on the straight and narrow into the highway of holiness. And, Lord, to reject everything that is evil and sinful. Lord, give us safety as we travel home, and we pray that you would bless us this week. Lord, help us to live faithfully to you. And Lord, as well, that you might bring us back together again on Wednesday. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.